We're going to be in Revelation 14 again. We uh, only made it through a few verses last week and uh, probably will be one more week going only through a handful of verses um, because there's an awful lot there. But um, we are uh, just entering into, uh, in chapter 13, we found the end of the seven characters, the main characters that we found. And uh, we saw the uh, beast out of the sea, and then we saw the beast out of the land. So we have the three um, uh, demonic forces, if you will, at play at this point. We have the dragon, which is Satan. And then we have the sea out of the, uh, the beast out of the sea, which is the Antichrist. He's the, the, the human embodiment that is uh, the governmental power. And then we have the beast out of the sea, uh, who is the false prophet. He's the one that has the, um, the power of the religious uh, parts of the world and the things dealing with religious nature. Um, and so we saw that as we ended chapter 13. Last week we began to uh, deal with chapter number 14. There's another pause that's given here. Uh, just before the, the vile uh, judgments, and that's spelled V-I-A-L, uh, referring to a, a container or something that can be poured out, a vial. And uh, just before these vile judgments uh, come on the world, there's another pause here. And... Uh, God, uh, again, just uh, takes a, a moment here, uh, and a lot of folks begin to uh, sing praises to God. Um, and uh, last week we got down to verse number, I think it was verse number 2. Let's go ahead and start there, verse number 2 and 3. And we're going to start verse 2 and just kind of get a running start into things tonight. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and the voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. And so uh, we, we find here in verse 2 that this voice that comes, that is the sound of um, uh, many waters and uh, the voice of great thunder. We believe that to be the voice of God himself. That's quite often the way uh, his voice is described in Scripture, and I don't think there would be uh, any problem with uh, coming to that conclusion. And when he speaks, the things that he says cause rejoicing. And we spoke a little bit on that uh, last Wednesday night, uh, how there was a new song that was put into the heart of the 144,000 that had been redeemed from the earth, on the earth, and um, the harpers that are singing in heaven, their voices being heard, and it's interesting because in verse 2 it talks about the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And so obviously there was music, but it doesn't say that they were singing. They just heard the voice. And I've heard some people uh, comment on this and read a few things about it, that oftentimes when you find angels rejoicing in heaven, it doesn't talk about them singing, but it does uh, talk about them saying things. Or, um, uh, you know, in like in... Uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, they chant things, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of, uh, of, of the Lord of hosts. Um, the whole earth is full of his glory. And they say that repetitively as they are praising God around the throne. And uh, so that's the way the angels are. And that's what I believe is referring to there in verse 2. And then verse 3 talks about the song. Uh, that is the song of the redemption. Uh, the song that uh, the angels cannot understand. They cannot learn it, the Bible says. Um, 
And uh, so we dealt with uh, last week the 144,000 Jews and their rejoicing. And so that's kind of where we left off. So verse number 4, the Bible says, These are they, uh, speaking of the 144,000, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, and their mouth and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now there's some interesting discussion about verse number four. Uh, there is there's not an indication here, and I don't want somebody to misread the first part of verse number four. There's not an indication here that if you are married that you have been defiled with a woman, although I know some husbands that feel that way. Uh, that is not, that's not what the Bible is referring to here. Uh, marriage is certainly honorable. God speaks of it quite uh, highly in Scripture. Marriage was ordained of God in the book of Genesis from the very beginning. Uh, I think it was Solomon who wrote, He who findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Um, you find Matthew in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus uh, acknowledges and recognizes uh, those that are married. Uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals with the issue of folks being married. He was in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul approves of it. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 approves of marriage. And I don't think there's any issue with us understanding that marriage is honorable. It's something that God uh, enjoys. It's a picture of a relationship here on earth, uh, of the relationship of those that are Christians with Christ and the bride and the bridegroom. And so what we do not find here in verse number 4 is a, um, a, a rejection of uh, those that are married. What it is referring to here, if you will remember back when uh, the seven trumpet judgments were taking place, just before the seven trumpet judgments, that the people of the earth uh, were, do, where they were committing adultery, they were into uh, things of the occult and worshiping devils, and they were, they were depraved. I mean, they were in absolute depravity. And the Bible said that they would, they would rather die than give up their sin. And so when it's referring here to those that did not defile themselves with the women, it's talking about the, the absolute uh, fornication, um, the loose living, um, the given to sinfulness that the world finds itself in. And we are rapidly at this point in our society racing down that road, where every, every sliver and glimmer of morality is falling by the wayside as our world is rushing down this road of immorality, uh, absolute vulgar depravity uh, in the area of fornication and things of that nature, and it's, it's appalling, really, it is. It's heartbreaking to watch what our world is going through, and it's not even where it's going to end up at. It still has a ways to go yet. And it's going to get so bad that the whole world is going to say we would rather die than give up our sin. Even though they know God's judgment is coming, they said we'd rather die. And so these 144,000, the Bible is referring to them here as those that have been redeemed. They've been singing uh, this new song of redemption and the joy that they have about being saved. And because they are saved, they keep themselves unspotted from the world. You'll find the context of verse 4 also in verse number 5. As we get to verse 5, the Bible says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault 
before the throne of God. Now this does not mean that they are without sin. But before the throne of God, they're without fault. By the way, if you've been saved and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, guess what? You and I get to stand before the throne of God without fault. Because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ covers us. God sees His righteousness. So it's not speaking here of sinless perfection. It's not speaking here of a group of 144,000 folks who never have sinned. They're sinners just like you and I. But they've been saved by the grace of God. And they are so enthralled. They are so excited about the idea that God redeemed them from their sins. That they are, that the Paul said it best, he said, The love of Christ constraineth me. And these folks, because of their love for what God did for them, willingly say, we're going to live a life that is unspotted from the world. We're going to follow the holiness of a holy God. And they passionately and fervently and, and diligently follow this path. And that's what these verses in 4 and 5 are dealing with. By the way, if the 144,000 Jews who are going to be redeemed during the tribulation period, and multitudes of them after them even, if they are going to be so excited about their redemption, if they are willing to say in the face of persecution, in the face of uh, the Antichrist, uh, the, 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 the false prophet coming after them and saying, we're going to put you to death, and they say, we don't care, We're still going to follow after the things of the Lord faithfully. If they can live unspotted from the world in that type of a tribulation, surely you and I can live unspotted from the world in the day that we live. It ought to be the desire of our hearts. If we've been redeemed, there ought to be a love of God that constrains us. I have long held that that, uh, standards, which a lot of people don't like to hear preached on, that the standards ought not be grievous to a Christian. They ought to be a joy to a Christian. They ought to be a fulfillment of our love expression to the Lord Jesus Christ for what He's done for us. I want to learn what makes Him happy, and then I want to do it. And I want to learn what makes Him sad, and I want to not do that. And it's because I want to please Him for the love that I have for Him. That's the attitude a Christian ought to have when it comes to our standards. I don't know why so many people say, well, why do we have to have so many standards? I want every one of them God will give me. It gives me another way to express my love to Him for every one that I have. And that ought to be the way we look at standards. It ought to be a fulfillment and outpouring of fruit of the work that God has done in our hearts. I think so often, if we're not careful, we lose that joy of our salvation. We don't think of it much. We lose the love, and and even though we do our devotion time, we're not really spending time devoted to God. We're not really spending that time of of allowing our hearts to draw close to Him. Uh, Having the time where, where, where God draws us to Himself. Uh... So many things that I wish I could express better in words. But there are folks that I know, because some of you have shared the testimony in this church, that know what I mean when I say that there are times when we're walking with God and spending time with Him praying and and just thinking and meditating on Him and singing His songs and reading Scripture and having that time personally with the Lord that it just gets so sweet you can't hardly stand it. It's in those moments that if He were to ask me anything, my answer would be absolutely. 
Yes, I'll do it. Why? Because I love him so much. But we soon forget that love. We soon forget the expression of it. We begin to, it's kind of like being married. Have you ever noticed that? Men and women are different, uh, in case you haven't figured that out yet. And, uh, you know, men are more of the mindset after, the, you know, on the 25th anniversary, and the wife says, you, only, you don't tell me you love me anymore. He says, well, I told you the day we got married, that should have been enough, you know. Because men are decisive. That they said it, they meant it, that's all they should have to say it. But women like to hear it over and over and over again. But the truth is, if you think about it, even in a marriage, uh, when you first get married, I mean, just everything's great. Everything's great. Everything's going well. And uh, then, then as you kind of settle into life, and problems happen, and you kind of get used to each other being there, the expression, it's not that the love is any less. In fact, if anything, the love sometimes is stronger. But the expression of it sometimes wanes, doesn't it? The thoughtfulness that we used to have for one another, the time that we would allocate and set aside. You remember, men, when we used to plan dates? We'd schedule time and we'd ask them out, have them go on a date with us. Now we come home from work and just grunt and say, get in the car, we're going to eat. And I use that to say this. If we're not careful, we do the same thing with the Lord. It's not that our love is any less sometimes, it's just that we've lost the expression of it. It's just kind of waned over the years. It's become callous. We've gotten so used to going to church. We've gotten so used to having a Bible in our possession that we can read anytime we want. That we just kind of kind of grow lazy with it, don't we? We lose some of that. And these folks are excited. They've been redeemed. And they sing this song in verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, the Bible says that this joy that they have, this expression they have, it tells us about their character. It tells us how they stay unspotted from the world. And the Bible says, these are they which were not defiled with women. And then it says, for they are virgins. Now, I don't, I don't believe that this means that they were unmarried. It could be, and it could be very easily, that they were unmarried uh, Jews. I don't know for sure that this is speaking of literal as much as it is the spiritual side of things. Because notice what it says here. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And so their dedication, their, their first priority, their love, their absolute loyalty to, is first and foremost to the Lamb, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so much so that the Bible says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. It's a reference to their chastity, their purity as a spouse to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us that are believers are part of that body of Christ. The Bible sometimes refers to it as the bride of Christ. And it's important that we understand that in and. Christ oftentimes, and God oftentimes, spoke of the adultery that the nation of Israel committed. And it wasn't a physical adultery, it was a spiritual adultery that took place. And so I believe in the context, as we look through verses 3 to 5, if we understand the context of the spiritual nature of what's happening here, I personally believe that this idea of them being virgins does not mean they weren't married, but it just simply means that they kept themselves pure from the things of the Antichrist and the things of this world and gave themselves wholly and completely to the Lamb and to follow after His holiness. By the way, that ought to be our attitude. 
whether it's speaking of the literal virgin and them not being married or not, suffice to say it does teach us that they had a passion and a love and a desire and a diligence to keep themselves unspotted, to be holy as Christ is holy. There's no guile, there's no lying, there's no deceit, there's no hypocrisy. The profession that they've made of, of trusting Christ as their Savior is a true and genuine profession. It's not in lip service only. I, I know a lot of people who uh, pray to prayer because they were told to pray a certain prayer. And if they would pray this prayer, then they could go to heaven. And the truth is, there was never an act of faith that took place in their heart. And they come to church because they know they're supposed to. That's why the Bible tells us that there will be many in that day which say unto me, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in your name? Have I not in your name cast out devils? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. I heard a preacher one time say that if God could open the eyes where we could see the hearts of men, he said, I believe it would shock us how many people sit in the pews of churches unsaved. I know that when God saved me, there was a change that took place. There was something that wasn't there before that's there, and it's been there ever since. There's been ups and there's been downs, and I understand that. I know there's been, there's been times that I've not been as close to the Lord and times I've been as close to the Lord. But from the day I got saved, something was different. Something changed on the inside. I will say this. When you get saved, there will be a new song. There will be a joy in your heart. It may be less or more than somebody else's joy, or at least the expression of it may be. But there will be something there that's going to draw your heart to the things of the Lord. There's going to be something that naturally draws you that direction. In fact, you're going to kind of be going along one day and all of a sudden realize, you know, there's some things I used to do that I don't do anymore because I, I, I just didn't feel right doing them. It just didn't seem like I should be doing those things. That's the Holy Spirit doing something in us. There's going to be some days you're going to be going down the road and you're going to think, well, you know, I really ought to get involved in something and, and do something for the Lord. That's, that's the Holy Spirit of God doing something in you. The Bible says, In their mouth was found no guile. They were very sincere. These are sinners. They're saved by the grace of God. And because they understood the depths that they'd been saved from, the fact that God had given them another chance to be saved, they are committed to Him. They keep themselves unspotted from the world. They are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Notice as we get down to verse number 6, the Bible says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Boy, I love that phrase, don't you? Having the everlasting gospel. To preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So understand this. We already knew this from studying some things earlier in Revelation. Not only are the 144,000 going to be saved, but there's going to be multitudes, the Bible says, of every tongue and every kindred and every nation. And there's going to be others that are going to be saved. And they're going to rejoice just as greatly as the 144,000. I love this idea of the what the Bible refers to here in Revelation as the everlasting gospel. Uh, the everlasting gospel, uh, understand this, is the only gospel that there is. There, there are some names that have been used over, over Scripture. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 14, uh, it is referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. 
And in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 24, it's referred to as the gospel of the grace of God. Well, that's a good name for it, isn't it? I love that one. And then in Acts 26, verse 16 to 18, it's mentioned as it's Paul's gospel. Now, Paul didn't have his own gospel. All these names, depending on what you call it, all refer to one gospel. There's only one gospel message. There's not many gospels. There's one. And the gospel is simply this. For people to come to a realization that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was sufficient to cover as full and complete payment for the sins of all men. And all that is left for man to do is to put their faith in what Christ has already done for them. To trust that this finished work is enough to save them, is enough to cover their sin, to give them that forgiveness. This is what the everlasting gospel is. It's called the everlasting gospel for a couple of reasons. Number one, its truth has always existed. The Bible, the Word, has always been in existence. God, when I was a kid, we were learning about God, and one of the things that the Sunday school teacher sometimes would ask is, where did God come from? We'd say, God didn't come from anywhere. He's always been and always will be. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse number 1, which chronologically is probably more fit to be the beginning chronologically of all Scripture than even Genesis 1-1 because it deals with before time. And it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Can I tell you, the gospel message was established before God ever created this world and man. It's been in existence in eternity past and will continue to be in existence in eternity future. And this is one of the reasons why it is called the everlasting gospel. Secondly, it's called the everlasting gospel because it will forever remain unchanged. You don't, you don't improve on it. You don't make it any better. You don't, you don't try to make something new out of it. It is what it is, and it will always be that. And then thirdly, the, we call it an everlasting gospel because the effects of this gospel are also everlasting. Aren't we glad of that? When we get saved and we trust Christ as our Savior, it is an everlasting salvation. We are eternally secure. It's going to be preached. Notice as we get to verse 6, this other angel flies into the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. So this is how we know that people are going to be saved during the tribulation period. Because this angel comes to preach, not judgment, although he does speak of judgment, but he comes to preach the gospel, the everlasting gospel. And he comes to preach it to those that are on the earth. There's only one reason I know why an angel would do that, and that is if those people had the opportunity to act upon that gospel being preached to them. It's interesting as we look in verse number 6, the Bible says that he comes to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, and this is where it's kind of interesting, because he mixes the gospel story with some of the judgment of God as well. Now notice what he says here. In verse number 7, there are four things that he gives us. Number one, fear God. Fear God. You know, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm not real sure that if we do not understand that we're lost and what the judgment of a holy God is on a sinful man, 
I'm not sure that we can get saved unless we understand that truth. It requires a level of a fear of God to understand that He has all authority and all power and all, all right to judge us and to judge us justly for our sin. Number two, it tells them to give Him glory. Notice in verse number seven, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him. There's something that's, that's special about the gospel message that causes people to rejoice in what it is. And you can't hardly realize that you once were lost and God has paid the price for you and all you have to do is put your faith in Him and trust Him and He'll take you to heaven. You can't hardly think those thoughts without giving praise to Him for it. This isn't the works of men that are, that are getting themselves to heaven. This isn't their merit. This isn't because they deserved it. And they understand it fully. And so the angel says, give glory to Him. He's the one that caused this. He's the one that made it possible. He's the one that's allowing you to have this mercy and this grace of the gospel. And then notice what he says in verse 7. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. <clears throat> These vials are getting ready to be poured out. He says, now, understand we're to fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of the water. Why is that important? Because everyone else on the face of the earth at this time is worshiping who? Worshiping the beast, the image of the beast, aren't they? He has now set himself up as the Antichrist. He's erected an image and he's caused men to worship the image. And those that don't worship the image by taking the name or the number or his mark in their hand or their forehead, they're put to death. Or they're hunted down at least to be put to death. And so there's, an in, there's a need for this angel to tell them, listen, don't worship those things. Worship Him. We're living in a world today that is worshiping all kinds of things, aren't they? They're worshiping their leisure. They're worshiping the things that they love to do. They're worshiping their, their, their money and their retirements. They're worshiping their homes and their boats and their cars. Some of them steep into the occult and begin to worship Satan himself. The things of this world. The Bible calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Men are worshiping them more and more. May we take it as a challenge not only to these folks, this preaching from the angel, why don't we take it to heart in the day that we live? Fear God. Give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come. And then worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. That's a great challenge. That's a great message for anybody to hear, isn't it? The eternal gospel, the everlasting gospel. To fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him that made heaven and earth. We'll pick up there next week because next week we're going to deal with Babylon. And if you ever wondered what Babylon is, we're going to find out next week as we get to verse number 8. All right? So let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. And, Lord, so many things that we can learn uh, just even from the, 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 the things that are going to happen during the tribulation period. Father, we understand what your heart is about these matters. And, Lord, understanding and knowing what your heart is, I pray that you'd help us to be diligent to do 
and to practice these things now. Lord, may we learn to fear you. May we learn to give you glory and to worship.